Hello and welcome to Listen Carefully. I'm your host, Nathan Jolly, and my guest today is James Rain. He's touring off the back of the 40th anniversary of Crawlfile, which is the 1984 greatest hit set from his band, Australian Crawl. And that tour actually starts tonight, so if you're anywhere near the Kingscliff Beach Hotel, you might want to press pause, buy tickets, and then come back on the other side. I was surprised how quickly all those songs came together. So between 1980 and 84, basically, that entire Greatest Hits set was recorded and released. That's an astonishing amount of work in such a short amount of time. Well, I think it's sort of what you did then. I mean, I don't know. It's, uh, that's not to say they're all great songs. Uh, <laughs> I think you just it was just what you were if and if you weren't recording you were on, on the road and you you know everyone was playing a lot and um there were places to play and I don't know it's an interesting it's interesting you say that because I never thought about thought of it that way you know yeah right because beautiful people I'd like to start there sure did you write that when you were 18 I re- yes, I think it might have been 17 or 18. I was at university and I remember I was, it was 19 because I remember going to uni. I, I went to the university in, okay, how old am I now? What was I born? 57, 60, 60, 70. So I wrote it in 75. So yeah, I would have been 18, 17, 18. It's amazing. It's such a mature piece of work for someone so young. What were you reacting to? Well, that's very kind of you. Uh, I don't know. I think I was living with a, a friend of mine, a guy called Mark Hudson, who was a great guitar player. He was a couple of years older than me, and and um, I was at uni, and he was at uh, he was at university. Um, he was just a great guitar player, and he came up with the music essentially, almost music. He he wrote that, and we we had a band. We never played anywhere. We just jammed in the house. We, we the share house. We shared a house, and we just right. used to uh, we smoked a lot of dope and jammed a lot, and uh, went to uni and. We wrote like quite a few songs, and that was just one of them. And when and then Mark moved. He was from Sydney originally. When he finished his uni, he went back to Sydney. He was actually going to be before Simon Binks. Before Simon, I got together with Simon. Mark was sort of might have been the first, might have been the guitar player in Australian Crawl. But um, I don't know. He just uh, I don't know. We just listened to a lot of music. I guess we listened to a lot of stuff that wasn't on the radio. Maybe we thought we were quite. Cool in our listen, you know, for for kids, we thought we were, well, he was probably twenty hours away. We thought we were quite cool in what we listened to in those days, you know. We were, yeah, right. Yeah, you know, we don't listen to the radio, man. You know, <laughs> we're a bit like that. <laughs> and I love the line: "The garden's full of furniture, the house is full of plants." Were those kind of people emerging around the mid seventies? Yes, that's that's the one line that was stolen. I stole that line. I've got permission from Michael Flanders and Donald Swan. I've talked about this a lot in the past, but. Uh, <laughs> Our father used to play a lot of Michael Flanders and Donald Swan. That's I, that. I, that's the only line I stole. They're the best line in the song. I stole. <laughs> yeah, there was just a lot of that stuff, you know. And um, it's funny. It was two hundred dollar push bike, and that was t- a two hundred dollar push bike was really expensive push bike. Yeah, I'm, I remember we used to live with like two hundred dollars. That would get us through about two or three months, virtually. Then I don't know. It was just it was watching pretentious people. I think in those days, just yeah. just writing about it really. And how about songs like? Lakeside, I love that song. From a bit later on, by that point, you guys had quite a few songwriters in the band. Was it hard to jostle for songs? No, because I think that was the second album. I think was the classic thing of um, you know, guy joined the band for the second album because you know, he had a he he had a couple of songs. So it was that was really helpful for the second album. You know, the they called they used to call them the sophomore jinxes. Yeah, <laughs> the 
oh, you probably know that the sophomore jinx is the second album fear you know you get your whole life to come up with your first one and then you got you know three months to come up with your second um well lakeside was a song that i wrote about uh where we lived in um, a place called Mount Eliza in the summertime, all the people would come down from town. It was sort of beachside sort of place. And you'd see all the panel vans and coming driving through town to head on down to the beach. And they just, you know, there was no one around during the whole year. And then suddenly, it still happens, because I, I live on the pla- in a place called the Mornington Peninsula. And uh still happens, there's no one around. And then suddenly, it's summertime, it's starting to happen now. Just the, the population, you know, quintuples. Yeah. So we used to sort of just, you know, take the mickey out of those those people the people from town yeah there's a lot of satire in your songwriting especially the aussie crawl stuff was that kind of the vogue at the time because i know there was lots of skyhooks have similar type of things i suppose ross wilson had a bit of that was there that in songwriting that Mm. kind of satire taking the piss thing around that era because it's not really something that seems to be popular anymore in songwriting I don't know. Um, yeah, well, I was Skyhooks was not a generation, but Skyhooks. I was a Skyhooks fan when I was at school, and I really liked Greg McCain, who wrote near, well pretty much all of the, except for a couple of songs that Red Red Simon's Red Red wrote. Um, Greg McCain, and he was probably the first person that really talked about for Melbourne local things like mentioning you know yeah. Turak Cowboys and Carlton and Bullwin and you know, some suburbs of Melbourne that sounded cool in a song. So I think that that certainly impressed me and uh, so I was probably aspiring to that as well. And that was sort of, certainly the sort of, um, you know, that was uh, for someone like me, that was kind of a cool thing. And I'd grown up, as I said earlier, with things like listening to things my, my father played like Michael Flanders and Donald Swan that were fairly specific lyrically and were quite cynical or, or having fun with certain subjects and writing about them in a, in a fairly, you know, sort of satirical way. Yeah, great. Do you listen back to your music much? Because I know you're kind of forced to do so no. now. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought so. Never, ever. I mean, you know, the stuff, I mean, I think I'm much more right, much more satirically now than I did then. But, I mean, if I listen to my own stuff, it's while you rec- I'm recording it. And because you listen to it a million times when you're recording something, you know, as anyone who's recorded would know. And uh, once it's done, you go, yeah, you know. You don't, I don't sit at home and listen to my own music. Yeah, no. Believe me. I believe you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's set up. I might put myself on. That'd be great. <laughs> what made you decide to record Reckless again in 89, was it? Did I? I was an acoustic version. Yeah, on the on that album, the I think it's on your second album. Whatever has House of Cards on also has a version of Reckless on. Oh, okay. Yeah, if it's those acoustic '89, might have been. Well, we certainly re-recorded nearly all the songs acoustically because there was a vogue to put out these acoustic records. Mushroom Records were doing a series of acoustic albums, and they asked me to do one, and I did one, and I was lucky enough that it did well enough that they wanted me to do a second, and they thought I had enough songs to do a second, so. Probably I probably didn't do it on the first one, and they probably said to me, "You've got to do Reckless." So, I'm like, yeah. all right. It's not like I'm chomping at the bit to really record things like Reckless. You know, often it's a it's a suggestion to me, going, "Well, you know, could you do this? It would help." And I go, "Yeah, okay." I get talked into it, and I go, "Sure." Are you sick of those songs? How do you feel about songs you wrote when you were like in your twenties or even younger that now you kind of have to play over and over, and they've kind of lived with you? Well, some of them I just think are really clunky, you know, and I get in trouble. There's a song called uh, 
Hoochie Gucci Fiorucci mama that I wrote when I was probably 17. You know, I, yeah. I remember writing it thinking, and because I can't play piano, but I, I can play the white notes. I mean, I can play more now, but then I can only play the three fingers or two fingers, and that's <laughs> all I can play. So it's all white notes. So it's all in the key of C. And I just wrote this song, and I was probably trying to be like Greg McCage. I was pr- probably trying to be impressive. And to me, it just sounds really clunky and kind of daggy now, and has for years. So I've never liked it, but. A lot of people seem to like it. So we this, especially this tour when we're doing crawl stuff, we will be playing it. Yeah, I was going to ask how widely you're going to cast the net for this tour because you've got like, for example, your the final crawl record came out after Crawl File. So will you be covering yes. any stuff of that? It's also quite different sounding. Oh yeah, that was that's a whole other story in itself, that record. But there's a song on there called Land of Hope and Glory that I redid on my first solo record, and that's much more how it was imagined, the one the one I, I did on my first solo record. So we'll be doing, probably doing that on this tour, but that's probably the only song we'll do from that record. The rest of them, um, you know, the rest of the songs on this tour we'll be doing from the other records because, you know, the other records did, did better commercially and uh, people are a lot more aware of the songs from that. So it's going to be all, it's all crawl stuff and it's stuff that people know, you know. Yeah. The debut album, The Boys Laid Up, was that a hard album to record? Because I've read various accounts that it was kind of painful for you guys. Well, it was pain. I mean, I've said so many things about these records over the years. <laughs> Probably painful in the sense that it was our first real time in the studio. Yeah. And when you first time you go in the studio, when you're just young and you've, you just, you know, you we were. Simon, the guitar player, was a good guitar player, but the rest of us, we weren't very good. We weren't great musicians. I mean, we're all right. And then you go in the studio, and and you, if you've never really had any studio experience, it's confronting. Yeah. And I think it was suddenly there was a lot of that. And David, who produced, was a great producer for that first record. And he was in Little River Band, and they made pristine records for the t- at the time. They made these really, you know, their harm, they, everything was impeccable on those records, and they were incredible musicians. And he, so he had these, and he was right. He had these kind of studio. You've got to be tighter. You've got to do this. You've got to. We were learning all this stuff. So I think it was. Um, not painful, but it was certainly a learning curve. It was a very steep, wow, okay. And then for me as a singer, and I couldn't sing, you know, it was like I was just hardly, I was, you know, I've said it before, it's like barely controlled sort of yelling that I was doing on that thing. And I just, I didn't really know. I was just going, oh, okay, you know. So it was, yeah, it was just a bit confronting. And I think we we realised, oh, we, in your head you think you sound, when you've only played live, in your head you think you sound like this thing over here. But when the finished result, we realised, oh, that's what we sound like. Well, I certainly did. went, oh, really? Is that what we sound like? But, you know. What did you think? You were heavier or did you just mean in terms of just tightness? I think just the tightness. I think you just learn this stuff. And we'd never really been to studios. So we'd, I think we'd made some demos. We'd made some rough demos, but we'd never just go and just get them down, you know, just bang them down. We, we didn't have any money. And I think we did some demos at night, you know, somewhere in a studio, probably someone did us a favour and let us have some studio time because it was night time. So I think we just banged them down and we went, oh, we, at least we've got something recorded. And then to go in the studio and make an actual proper record in those days that would might get played on the radio. So it was okay to, you know, it was, um, as I said, it was just, uh, realize, oh hell, we're not as accomplished as nowhere near as accomplished as possibly we might have thought we were. Well, then the album was a big hit, yeah, and then you had to follow it up. Is that why you brought Guy in? No, not at all. No, because Guy, see, Guy was a great friend of mine, and uh, I shared a house with Guy, and uh, he was he had a band called the Flatheads, and I was in this band called Australian Crawl, and Guy, Guy and I had been in a band earlier called Spit Frouch. 
So we'd had this band, Spiff Routes, and then um, Simon uh, was in Spiff Routes as well. And then uh, so the three of us, and then we started, Brad, Simon, and I started Australian Crawl ostensibly, and with my brother was in it, and Paul was in it, because we knew Paul from the Spiff Routes days because we'd done some gigs with the band he was in, and we got to know him a bit. So that's how we sort of started Australian Crawl at the very, very, very beginning. So Guy and I knew each other, and we'd played in a band together, and then... He went off and had his band, The Flatheads, and then I was, you know, I was there. and then we, he and I shared a house. And then after, I was always saying to him, you should, we should get you in the band. It'd be great, you know. We'd have a great time on the road and, you know. we. So that's sort of, and by that stage, Guy's brother, Bill, was in the band. And, of course, Bill was in a, a guy being in the band. So it wasn't wasn't hard to say. And he, then he, by then he'd become friends with Brad as well. And, and obviously knew Simon. So he was sort of half in the band anyway. Like socially he was in the band, you know. And yeah. It just made sense for him to join. And he had some songs. He had some lovely songs. And he was a great, was a great singer. Yeah. Was that weird for you kind of stepping aside to let someone else sing or was it great? It was great. It was <laughs> great. I was the one going, do you want to sing this one too? I wanted this one. Amazing. No, it was, it was good. And we were mates and we shared a room on the road. We, we shared a house, at, at, you know, when we went home. And, um, you know, it was just fun. It was good. We're all friends. What was it like having to go solo after being in a band with mates for so long? Was that a completely different experience or did you kind of gather a band? I've said this before too. And with respect to everybody else, it was like it was an absolute like I'd been let free. It was like suddenly, oh, <laughs> you, I didn't have to pay lip service to band democracy and that's you, you have to you know band democracy when you're in a band it has to be a democracy every decision is a democratic one you know it's, it's always the majority rules and you have to make a lot of decisions when you're in a band you know especially if things start to happen especially you know when there are record companies and there's management and all that sort of stuff so uh, no when i was went solo it was it was great i i just you know i sort of i'm probably better I'm probably a better solo than, than a band member, you know. So I like to want to do it this way. Like, we just do it this way. Yeah, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you mentioned before, like, when you guys were coming up, you listened to cool music, for want of a better term. You didn't listen to the radio, et cetera. Yeah. How did you feel then when you started having number one hits? Because you had, like, two number one records, a number one single. Like, you guys were big. So suddenly you're a commercial radio band. Yeah, it was odd. I mean, it was just because we, we never thought anything would happen. We were, we we were, we did it because we were having fun. We were all doing other things, you know. Some of us at university and doing all these things, and it was just this thing we did, and we really enjoyed it. And we we did it at the start. Did it enough that we could keep doing it, sort of on the sort of on the weekends and most nights. You could do it, and you're young, and you know you go to uni in the day. But we, you know, we weren't doing courses. That, oh, I was a drama school. I was probably the most taxing person because drama school was nine to five, five days a week. But um, we're young, we're just having a good time, you know. We just enjoyed it, and then it's almost without. There wasn't a great deal of ambition. I mean, we wanted to do things, and then there was interest in it. There was just interest in the band, and would you guys? And it was just a series of sort of small decisions we had to make. Like, would you guys be like? There was interest in us making a single. Okay, sure. With a view to making an album, if the single died in the in the ass, we wouldn't have probably made an album, or we might have made two singles, and that didn't work. And then because the first thing was sort of worked and got some exposure, EMI signed us. And <clears throat> and then there was interest, in, like, from record companies. And we went with EMI because, we, you know, we just liked the guys that were there. And then there was interest in making an album. Then we had to make some demos to make the album. Then because David Briggs was interested in producing us, a record company was more confident in us making an album. So it was all these sort of small decisions. 
And then suddenly sort of go, my point being, we never really had this wild ambition going, right, we've got to do this and do that. And, you know, we just going, oh, it just seems to be good. You can get free drinks and you meet girls. Yeah. It's the classic, it's a cliche, but, you know, we were at that. And then sort of this thing did really well, the first one. I don't know, it was weird. It was just at the time I think there was a bit of, you know, just Australia, you, you stick your head up, someone's going to try and chop it off sometimes, you know. Yeah, I was wondering about that, if you had a backlash. Yeah, there was a little bit of stuff, but it doesn't seem to happen that much anymore. No. Well, I don't know because I'm not 20, but, you know, um, it certainly was much more because it's so much it's so much more diversified now and there are so many more avenues and outlets. I mean, then there were, you know, there were no podcasts. I mean, there was no – there was Countdown. There was probably – at that stage, when we started the Don Lane show on Channel 9, there were four television channels – Probably three music channels and the two music radio music stations, rock stations. There wasn't FM when we started, so it was a much smaller landscape. But that's why people did. You could sell, you know, you do more gigs and stuff because no one. That's what people went to do for their entertainment. You know, they weren't no internet, no couldn't dial up a movie. How has your songwriting process changed over the years? Because it sounds like earlier on you were more adding lyrics to other people's things or you were driving at lyrics first. Is that still how you think about songwriting? No, I think then I was just going, it just came out. And a lot of those songs you can tell, I just had a a piece of of something and then you can tell probably the first verse was all right and then I was going, I just got to finish this thing. I'll write almost anything just to finish it. Right, yeah. Sometimes, not all the time. That's a bit of a generalisation. But now... I probably I write a lot more songs now. I mean, I you know I write a lot more songs than I did then, and I because I've done it for so long and the craft, and I've you know got into the craft of it, and I just try to learn more. I've tried to learn more, and I know what my strengths are, what my weaknesses are, and I don't know. I, I know as much now as that if you don't, if something doesn't go, teach you like you're playing the guitar, and suddenly oh what's that? What's that? What's this? And you start you play it you know 28 million times, and something, and then you start singing noises. That's usually how it happens with me. I start singing noises or phonetic sounds. Or I've got a title. I might try and fit that title into whatever I'm playing. Right. Then I really do the homework now. I sit down and go, okay, let's nut out these lyrics. Whereas then it was a bit more blur. Just <laughs> let it fall, vomit out, fall out. Yeah, I like the Toontown Lullaby record that you released recently. And there's quite a few ballads on that as well, which I really enjoyed. Were they written on piano or were they written on guitar? Those a couple songs? were. There's a song, two of them as a song. And again, I'm being a bit of a, you know, I'm just, that's why I think I'm much more sarcastic now than I was then or sneaking <laughs> lyrically. But uh, yeah, there's a song called Trying to Write a Love Song. Yeah, yeah, I know that one. Which is based on the fact that these two women I know who I know well, both said to me around the same time, well, why don't you ever write love songs? I'm going, because I can't do it. i just hopeless at it. You know, I just <laughs> love songs that have been written, you know. So that's where that started. And then a song called Burning Books I wrote on the piano as well. But again, it's my old, you know, plunk, plunk, plunk. But I know still have a few more chords on the piano. Do you practice music at all? Or is it just, you just, it's a byproduct of you play music so often? It's a byproduct because I, I could go like this and there's a guitar right here. And I'm, this is my desk. Great. And uh, there's a guitar right here. And I'm always, if I'm at my desk, I'm always fiddling around with something. In fact, I've been writing, I'm just, today I was working on something that I've been working on. And you mentioned you write a lot more songs now. How yeah. many do you discard? Is that part of the songwriting process for you? Like you'll write yep. 40 for each album? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I write. Um, well, with the last record, most records, you know, I've usually gone in the studio and if you're going to put, if there are 10 songs, 
I've usually gone in there with an idea that I've got, probably got seven totally complete. The eighth is close to, and they're going to go, oh, I've got a couple of bits, so I better finish them off in the studios. And you can probably hear that sometimes in some of the songs. You go, oh, that sounds like just dashed off. Just get this finished to finish the record. Do you enjoy recording? Oh, no, I'm quite famous. Anyone who's worked with me who's a technical person, and I've worked with some of my best friends, you know, often I've made albums with my very, very best friends, and we're still very best friends, but they just, they'll raise their eyes going, James in the studio is just technically I'm hopeless. And I've made a lot of records now, and I just still don't go, why does that work? <laughs> so I rely on people who are more technical, you know, who are technical. I'm just completely not technical. So it's not that I don't enjoy it, but I sort of, I'm sitting there going, what are you doing now? Why, 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 can't, why can't the guitar be, and they go, because you, you've got to do this, this, you know. <laughs> I know you've got to do certain things to sounds to make them sound beautiful. And I'm going, you know. So I'm probably a bit of a pain in the ass because I'm just a complete Luddite technically. I want to ask you about Countdown, where you went on with your arms in plaster, which is amazing. Was That, that was due to a car accident, right? Yeah. I got hit by a car. I was walking. You, you were hit by a car? Yeah, I was, I, was on, I was on my legs. I was walking and the car hit me, yeah. Wow. And was there any thought of not doing that performance considering you're in plaster or was it just very important to get that? No, I think it, I think it was already, it had already probably been booked at that stage. And I think it was one of those things going, we'll just do it. Well, we did, we're doing gigs yeah, as well. Right. We're doing gigs all the time. And when you've got your, both your arms in plaster, you can't do anything. You know, I worked out how to go to the toilet. That's all I could do. You can't shower, you can't dress, you can't eat. You've got to have someone do cut every cut food up for you, dress you. In those days too, the thing I remember quite amazingly was that in those days there weren't many automatic opening doors, a lot of swinging doors. Right. And I remember a lot going. You'd be walking into a building and the office, like, and the, the swinging doors because no, no automatic. And people just walk in and push the door to come back. I mean, no, no, no. <laughs> So, no, there was always a thing that we made the joke about, look, if, if this band doesn't work, at least I remember. That. First of all, we thought they're going to think, everyone's going to think this band this is their gimmick. Yeah. The singing with his arms in plaster. And then we thought, at least they'll remember us. It'll, it'll work either way. You know, people go, it's a gimmick, or and at least they'll remember us. So, you know, we did it anyway. Who cares? Yeah, and it's great. It still makes for great footage. Yeah, thanks. An interesting choice of yours was to do Way Out West, and that was a huge hit. How did that come about? Um, that was much later, and Brad Robinson, who was in Australian Crawl, who's not, sadly not with us, was managed me at that stage. And um, I was signed to Ruart Records, which was owned, run by Chris uh, Murphy, who was yeah. in Excess's manager. And I knew Chris. Unfortunately, Chris is no longer with us. And I was became quite friendly with Chris. And I was signed to Ruart. And Brad and Chris got on like a house on fire. And they would sit up on Friday nights, I think, and smoke a joint and sort of brainstorm. And they knew that I liked, I always liked, because we grew up listening, you know, Brad and I used to listen to a lot of um, Jerry Jeff Walker and uh, John Prime, um, Towns Van Zandt even, you know, um, when we were at school. And uh, so we always liked that kind of music. So, and I was, I was like country music. I always wanted to make a country album, even like around the time my first solo album, I wanted to make a country record. So Brad and Chris were sitting up one Friday, I think, and saying, what, James, you know, he wants to make a country record. I can take no credit for this. And they thought, why don't we get James to do a duet? We'll find whoever the sort of country star is, Australian country star at the time, and we'll find a song. And they said to me, I went, that sounds great. Got to think of a song. And I was, a, I was always a huge fan of the Dingoes because I was a huge fan of Broderick Smith. 
And a friend, another friend of mine called Megan Tudor, who was a publicist, she knew me and knew that I loved the dingoes. And I was, couldn't, couldn't think of a song. And Megan said, why don't you do a dingo song? And it was either Boy on the Run or Way Out West. And I thought, well, maybe we'll do Way Out West. So I had my band. And then I think maybe Brad had seen James Blundell on the midday show or performing or something and seeing all the women going crazy for James, <laughs> going, that's the guy, right? He, says, he was that handsome, you know guy and the women going nuts going that's the guy perfect james and james makes sense so it was a series of you know sort of happy oh no good design by brad and chris and um anyway we recorded in melbourne with it my i did it with my band and then james sang on it and there you go that's how it happened did that change the makeup of your gigs at the time in terms of demographics like did you notice younger people come in or not no because no no we still not i think we James and I went and did some gigs for a couple of weeks. We did like two, three, four weeks of gigs. And I know we were, I was, you know, I was more popular in the country areas than I'd ever been. Wow. Because I was with James. But, uh, and when you have a hit record, suddenly the crowds get bigger and then, you know, it was good. Okay. It was a good time. Final question. Mm -hmm. Of all the Australian Crawl songs, do you have a favourite? Um, it's funny, there are, there are songs... There songs on there that I think were okay songs, but we never got them right recording-wise. Oh, yeah? Like what? I must admit, I like, I really, still really like singing. I mean, I like, I've, got, I've learned to like, really like some of them. But I went, to, I go through periods, I go, oh, this, this old thing. Is when you've sung a song for, I've sung some of these songs for 40-something years, and you sort of yeah. go, you lose objectivity. I'm not saying I don't like them, but I just go, oh, I don't know, what's, who cares about this song? Um, but I like singing Own oh, no, At You again. I think that's I'm this guy wrote it, but um I've sung it for years and years and I, because I know what it's about and I know all the different layers of what it's about. So I'll say that one. And that was James Rain, and he is touring off the back of the fortieth anniversary reissue of Crawl File, the best of set from Australian Crawl. And you can buy the vinyl and buy tickets to his tour, which is going until July, by the way. So it's a good six months worth of tour dates. It's insane. Anyway, you can buy that at jamesrain.com.au. My guest next week will be Brian Ritchie from The Violent Femmes. Until then. Mm -hmm.